you have your Bibles, I hope you do. If not, grab one in front of you or share with someone next to you. Open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through I know that's not very nice to blow my nose in front of you, but it's that, or you listen to me sniffle throughout the rest of the sermon. All right. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, mission of suffering, the discipline, life. Have you ever watched one of those baking shows on TV? You ever watched those? You know, the ones where there's individuals or, or sometimes there's teams of people who are in competition to see who can... Who can bake the best cake? I don't like those shows. I don't. Just ask my wife. But my wife likes those shows, so that's why I know what happens on them. Because from time to time, because my wife likes those shows, I find myself watching them. Um, One thing that's true of all the bakers on those shows is that they bake with an awareness that the end is quickly approaching. You ever notice that? They bake with an awareness that the end is quickly approaching. They don't waste time. As soon as that clock starts, they get to work. They don't stop, brew a pot of coffee, sit down, drink their coffee, and discuss what they're doing. They get after it. They are disciplined with the time that they have been given. And to be disciplined in this sense means that you don't get lazy, nor do you go crazy. Right? Those two things can happen. You can look at the clock and go... There's no way. And just sit back and do nothing. Or you can look at the clock and just get into a panic, right? You don't do either of those things if you're on that show. You keep doing what needs to be done no matter the obstacle, no matter the difficulty, no matter the distraction. Why do the bakers bake with discipline? Well, it's because the clock is ticking. They are under the shadow of the clock, so to speak, and it impacts how they go about their baking process. There's a similar truth for us, but on a much grander scale than a baking competition. You and I are under the shadow of eternity, and it ought to impact how we live our lives. The reality of the fact that we live, as Scripture says, in the last days ought to lead us to live disciplined lives. I want you to notice with me this passage before us today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. It says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to give you a a, a summary statement of where where we're headed Set some context for us and we'll dive into this passage. Here's our summary statement. We lead others to worship Jesus when we view suffering for Jesus as motivation for disciplined living. We lead others to worship Jesus when we view our suffering for Jesus as a motivation for disciplined living. To live a disciplined life. 
Now, we're in the final passage of not of the letter, but of the main body of Peter's letter. This main body began back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And in this section, this main body, he's calling believers, as he calls them, exiles in this world, to stand out. He's calling believers to stand out by choosing two things. There's a lot of other things, but he's focused on two things in this main body of his letter. One, he calls us to stand out by choosing to submit to authority in instances when the world would flex its independence and strength and say, I'm not doing that. That'll make us stand out. And he also calls us to stand out in this world by choosing to suffer for doing what is good when the world would say, you ought to retaliate. Or they would say, just compromise your beliefs. We choose to submit and we choose to suffer. And when we do that, we stand out to the world. Now, why do we want to stand out to the world? Because we're on mission. Our mission in all of this is to lead others to glorify God. That is to become worshipers of Jesus. And in this suffering section, we have seen that we lead others to worship Jesus when we view suffering as a means of blessing. When we view suffering as a path of exaltation and we view suffering as a sign of our transformation, of the transformation that God has wrought in us through the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, in today's passage, we want to learn to view suffering for Jesus as motivation for a disciplined living, for a disciplined living. Notice first this this phrase that begins verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Well, what in the world does Peter mean by that? Does he mean that? Jesus is coming the next day. He's going to return. Well, I don't think that's what he meant, because if so, he'd have been wrong. Right. It's about 2000 years since Peter wrote this. Okay, And so it doesn't mean that tomorrow Jesus is coming back. This terminology, which is used of life after the death of and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the elect exiles were living in the last days and we are living in the last days. It doesn't mean that Jesus is definitely going to return in a short amount of, amount of time. We don't know exactly when he's coming back. Of course, Jesus' return, no matter when it is, is near in light of the grand scheme of eternity, right? What is Peter talking about here, though? It, this phrase does mean that we are living in the time after Jesus has come and conquered death. Which means that the next big thing to happen in God's grand plan of redemption is that Christ is going to come back and he's going to establish his earthly kingdom. And so the Bible tells us uh, that we live in in the last days. That's the phrase that the Bible uses. Or sometimes this phrase here, that the end of all things is at hand. Now this statement is a call to live our lives with a sobering reality that eternity is really only a heartbeat away and that all that really matters The grand scheme of eternity is that we live our lives for the glory of the one who is the death conquering king. As one writer said, it is a call to live in the shadow of eternity. I like that. A call to live in the shadow of eternity. And then I ask the question, what the world does this have to do with the the broader context of suffering? Because we're not even going to see the word suffer in this passage. But we want to take this passage in its broader context. Now, Peter has been addressing the theme of suffering for righteousness sake. And and just as he reminded his readers that judgment is coming for those who persecute them, he's also just reminded them in the previous verse that life has been promised. Eternal life has been promised to those who endure suffering as they live for the will of God rather than for sinful 
passions. In other words, he's just told them that their suffering is temporary in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. But not only does the fact that, our, that we live in the last days help us know that our suffering is temporary, it's also a reminder, and get this, it's also a reminder that our time for living on mission for God, that is our time for living for God's glory and living to lead others to glorify God, to become worshipers of Jesus, is short as well. Now, we'll live for God's glory for all of eternity, but we won't be living on mission there. The mission will be over. It will be accomplished. Now is the time that we have to live on mission. In other words, the temporary nature of our suffering reminds us that we don't have long to live for God's glory in this world. The clock is ticking. The end of all things is at hand. And if we don't have long to live on mission, to live for God's glory, then listen, church, we better not waste any time. And so this passage, what Peter's going to call us to, is a life of discipline. Our suffering motivates us to live disciplined lives in the present as we live in light of the end. I want you to notice with me three basic areas in which we are to live disciplined lives as Peter writes about in this passage. And he began with this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. So as you suffer for Christ, let the reality of Christ's coming kingdom lead you to, number one, be disciplined to think clearly so that you can pray correctly. Be disciplined to think clearly so that you can pray correctly. This is where he goes with the first therefore. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. These are two words in the Greek that are really just used as synonyms here. They're not telling us two different things. It's saying the same thing using two different words. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Another way we could say is think clearly. Actually, three times in this letter, he uses this phrase sober-minded. To, to, be, to be clear thinking about our lives. To think clearly about who God is, who we are, what our purpose here is, is here on this earth. How much time we have left. And to use our time in light of that clear thinking for the glory of God. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He uses this uh, word sober-minded here when he's talking about the end of all things is at hand and he's calling us to live a disciplined life. And he uses it over in chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is a call as we realize that we are exiles in this life to live with sober mindedness, to live with clear thinking. We must think seriously about life on this earth. Listen, it's not a joke. It doesn't mean we can't have fun. This isn't a call to be gloomy and walk around with an angry face all the time. That's not what this is. But it is a call for us to realize that we can't sit around wasting time. We have to think clearly about our lives because how we live matters since we belong to God. Remember, that's what it means to be an elect exile, someone who no longer belongs to the world, but now belongs to God. We belong to him. And so how we live matters and we'll be held accountable for that. There's no time for careless thinking, which would lead to careless living. You want to see an example of careless living? Look back at verse three in chapter four. We looked at that passage last week. That's careless living in chapter four, verse three. Listen, we are called to holiness, but there is an enemy prowling around like a roaring lion. We are called to live on mission, but it's tempting to not think about the people that are around us dying and going to hell. 
We are called to live in love and service towards one another, but we are constantly bombarded by selfish desires that would promote disunity in the body of Christ rather than harmony. We must think clearly about who we are in light of eternity. But notice why he says we're to do that. He says it's for the sake of your prayers. So we're to think clearly so that then we can pray correctly. The fact that we are exiles in this world means that we're completely dependent upon God who has made us exiles. We are dependent upon him for everything that he calls us to do. And there's nothing, there's nothing we do that is a deeper declaration of our dependence upon God than prayer. That's what prayer is. It's us saying, God, we need you. We can't do this on our own. We need to declare our dependency on God through prayer, and we need to make sure we pray about the right things. If our minds are clouded by the things of this world, then our prayers will be more focused on this life than the next. We'll be more focused on getting things and storing up treasures here than we will be living in light of eternity. And that will be reflected in the way that we pray. When we think clearly about life, that we are exiles on mission in a world that is coming to an end, I think we'll pray more for the salvation of the lost than we will for protection from the lost. When we think clearly that we are exiles on mission and that life here is coming to an end and eternity is waiting, I think that we will pray more for endurance and suffering than we will for escape from suffering. I think when we think clearly about our lives here as exiles on mission, that we'll pray more for strengthened faith during trials than we will for a quick end to the trials that we face. And I just say simply, when we think clearly about the fact that we're exiles on mission, we'll just pray more. We'll just pray more than we do when we don't, when we aren't thinking about the fact that we are exiles on mission for God. Prayer, communication with God is essential if we're going to live as exiles on mission. But we will only pray and we will only pray correctly if we have disciplined minds so that we think rightly about this world and our lives in this world. So we want to be disciplined to think clearly so that we can pray correctly. The second thing that we want to do in light of the end is we want to be disciplined in how we relate to our church family. The first one was kind of focused on ourselves a little bit more, how we think and and pray. But then we want to shift gears and we want to think about the body of Christ. And that's where Peter goes next and spends the majority of this passage. He is going to spend the majority of this passage about disciplined living, talking about our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about having discipline in the way that you relate to one another. Honestly, I, I'm not sure I've thought about my relationships with you in the, in the sense of discipline. That I need to be disciplined in how I relate to you. Now, this word discipline, by the way, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about being punished for something. I'm talking about making sure we're not wasting our time and doing things that matter. Okay, that's what we mean by discipline. But I've never thought about that. There's three ways that he calls us to be disciplined in this passage. Uh, the first one is this. That is to love earnestly. To love earnestly. Look at what he says, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. One of the ways that we're disciplined, we ought to be disciplined in the way we relate to one another, is we ought to be disciplined to love one another 
earnestly. I want you to notice here in this short little sentence the priority of love, the constancy of love, the intensity of love, and the benefit of love. Notice first the, the priority of love. He says, above all. He's saying, he's saying, if you don't do anything else, if you don't get anything else right in the body of Christ, you get this right. You love one another earnestly. Why would he say that that is above all? Well, Jesus summarized all of the commandments with the command to love. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, you want to obey all the law, you love. You love. Anytime you break any of the commands, whatever that command is, it's been a failure to love. Either to love God or to love one another. Above all, he says, love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We often read this passage at weddings. And it's okay to do so. It's not just a wedding passage, though. In fact, this is a passage about how we're supposed to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And Paul says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And in the end of that passage, he says this. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Notice the priority of love. I think it's also prioritized because it also is the most direct picture of the gospel. Remember, we're to be living on mission, which means we're to be pointing others to Jesus. What better way can we point the world around us to Jesus than by loving one another the way that Jesus has loved us with a deep, sacrificial, selfless unconditional love for one another that is willing to forgive and go the extra mile. Notice after the priority of love, the constancy of love. He says, above all, keep loving. Keep loving. There's this word in the Greek that that leads us to this, this. And this is really where I get this idea of discipline from in this passage. There's a stick with it nature to this love. Keep doing it. Have this love. Don't just have it one time, but have it continually. Keep on loving one another. Love and don't stop loving. It's like the athlete who is disciplined to go to practice day after day after day after day, even when it's difficult. And we ought to want to grow deeper and deeper and deeper in our love for one another. But not just the priority of love and the constancy of love. I want you to notice the intensity of love. How are we to love? Lightly? No. Earnestly. Vehemently, you could say. With a passion, a deep Deep passion, we're to love one another earnestly. In fact, the two times in this letter that Peter calls us to love one another, he uses the same description of how we're to love one another. If you look back at chapter 1, verse uh, 22, he says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Two times in this letter, he commands the elect exiles to make sure they're loving one another and he qualifies it by saying, we're not going to settle for some light kind of love. You love one another earnestly. Here's how I think about that. You love and you don't stop loving. You love when it's hard to love. You love when it's time consuming to love. You love when you think that love is undeserved. 
you love and you keep on loving. But then notice the benefit of this love. He has this phrase at the end of verse 8 that's interesting. He says, since, because, love covers a multitude of sins. He's going somewhere with this. Why why are we called to love one another so deeply? There's a lot of reasons, but one reason he gives here is he says that love covers a multitude of sins. Well, what is he talking about? He doesn't mean that our love atones for sin like Jesus' love does. Jesus' love on the cross for us actually saves us from sin. It covers over. That's what the word atone means. It covers over our sins. In, In other words, it washes them clean. Okay? Now, our love for one another doesn't have that kind of power. Only Jesus' love can do that. So what, is, what does Peter mean when he says love covers a multitude of sins? Let me give you a, let me give you a kind of a, a definition, an explanation, and then I want us to look at a verse in Proverbs where I think Peter's drawing this, this thought from. It does mean, this phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, it does mean that our love for one another should be displayed by overlooking the sins of others for the benefit of extinguishing sin among Christians rather than fanning the flames. Okay, let me say that one more time. We're going to look at a verse in Proverbs. This phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, means that our love for one another should be displayed by overlooking, a conscious choice, overlooking the sins of one another for the benefit of extinguishing sin among Christians rather than fanning the flames. I'm going to qualify that statement in just a moment, but I want to look at a verse in Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says this. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. I'll read that one more time. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. Now, oftentimes in Proverbs, we have something stated and then the opposite stated. And you can figure out one part by looking at the other part because it's opposite. Okay, so you can clearly see hatred and love are put in juxtaposition to one another, all right? Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. So hatred and love. Well, let's look at the other part of the phrase. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. The covers all wrongs is a little bit difficult to understand, but it's pretty easy to understand what stirs up dissension means. You know what it means to stir up dissension. It means to stir the pot and create disunity where there wasn't any or create more where there was a little of it. To stir that pot, to get things going, all right? Uh, My kids are good at this, right? They stir the pot with one another. You think everything is great, and then one one of them does one thing, and what's the other one have to do? Hit her back, right? Or steal something in return. And then that first person has to do something back. And so instead of loving one another, the opposite of love is hating one another. And what that hatred does is it just keeps stirring the pot. And so the, the, the fires of that sin just keep on going. One sin leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Well, if hatred does that, love does the opposite. Love puts out the fire of sin. So someone says something to you that wasn't really nice. A brother or sister in Christ, someone in the church, this wasn't kind. I mean, we don't know why they said it. Maybe we're just having a rough day. But it, it, just, it just came out kind of, kind of sharp, kind of snarky, right? And and so you have a choice to make in that moment. You can just say, you know what? Probably having a bad day. I love this person. They're my brother and sister in Christ. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let it go. It's not that big of a deal. This isn't a, a habit in their life. It's not a pattern of sin that needs to be confronted. I'm just going to choose to love them and let that thing go. You know what's just happened? You've quenched the fires 
of sin. Or you could snap back at them. And you know what you just did? You stirred the pot. Or instead of snapping back at them, you can go gossip about them. Well, it's just as bad. You're stirring the pot. You know that one of the ways that wildfires are fought is with fire? You know that? One of the ways you fight wildfires is with fire. So wildfires burning in an uncontrolled fashion, that's why it's called a wildfire, and then wherever it's moving towards, go ahead and you have a controlled burn of where it's moving towards, and then when it gets there, there's nothing for it to burn because it's already been burned up and the fire dies. Here's what I think Peter is saying. We are to fight the fires of sin in the church with the fire of love. We ought to be so on fire in love for one another that we're putting out the fires of sin by our willingness sometimes just to overlook times that we're offended for the sake of gospel unity in the church. And when we love this way, we display the beautiful gospel to the world and we keep ourselves on mission. That's why Satan wants to bring this unity in the church because when we're focused on fighting with one another, we're not focused on the battle outside that is spiritual and going to war for the hearts and souls of men and women who are dying and going to hell. He would love for us to be so focused on on trying to put out little fires here and there in the church and disunity here and there that we forget all about the mission that He's called us to. So we need to be disciplined in our love for one another There's enough ammunition being fired at us from the world. We don't need any casualties due to friendly fire. That's loving one another earnestly. There's another way that we're to uh, be disciplined in our relationships with one another, and that's to show hospitality joyfully. So we love one another earnestly, and we show hospitality joyfully. Verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. I was thinking, what is the opposite of grumbling? I was trying to think of a word, the word that just kept coming to my mind over and over, and somewhat I borrowed from the book of Philippians, where it's all about living with joy, and there Paul clearly calls us to not live with complaining and arguing attitudes. I thought, man, the opposite of grumbling is joy. We want to show hospitality joyfully. Now, in this day and time, there was a great need for Christians to show hospitality. One, because there were traveling missionaries, right? I mean, even Paul, when he's traveling on his missionary journeys and lots of other um, they needed somewhere to stay, right? They, they didn't have nice hotels in this day and time. And, and so, one, they didn't have enough money. And two, those places that they would stay, those hotel-type places, weren't really good to stay at. And so they needed Christians to open up their doors. But not only for traveling missionaries, but also churches met in homes. There was no church building when Peter wrote this. When they gathered as the church family, they were in somebody's home. And so there was a need to show hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, times are a little bit different, especially for us in in the church in America. Do we still need to be hospitable? I think so. I think so. I think when we're hospitable, we open up our homes to one another. There's an opportunity to build deeper relationships than we can just build on a Sunday morning here in our church building. And also, discipleship doesn't just happen one or two days a week in a church building. Discipleship ought to be happening all throughout the week. As we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we open up our homes for one another. Now, hospitality, um, hospitality sometimes is difficult. And I think that's why Peter says you've got to do it, but do it without grumbling, right? Uh, sometimes hospitality can be costly. Sometimes hospitality may be inconvenient. Sometimes hospitality may mean caring for someone who is very different than you. 
But our belief in the gospel is more powerful in uniting us than our differences are at dividing us. And so we ought to be hospitable and be hospitable joyfully. So we're to love earnestly in the body of Christ. We're to show hospitality joyfully in the body of Christ. And then also we're to serve humbly. We're to serve humbly in the body of Christ. This is the third way that we're disciplined in our relationships with one another. We serve humbly. Notice what he says in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift. Listen, each one of you, each one of us as followers of Christ, we have received a gift. God has given us some kind of ability, some kind of gift that we can use in service in the body of Christ. And it calls us stewards of this gift, of these gifts, as good stewards of God's very grace. A steward is not someone who owns the thing. It's someone who manages the thing for the good and for the benefit of the one who gave it. Now, God is the one who gives the gift to us. It was his and he's graciously given it to us. And now we're to steward it. We're to manage whatever gift he's given us to serve him. But the way that we serve him is by serving one another. Notice it says that we each have a gift. We're each stewards of our gifts. And we're to serve one another with our gifts. We could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul goes into great detail about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. And one of the things that stands out in Paul's three-chapter explanation of spiritual gifts is that they're to be used for the good of one another in the body of Christ, not for our own personal benefit. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, here's the key phrase, for the common good. And then over in chapter 14, he says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. We're to use our gifts to serve one another, but we're to use them and I make sure of this because this is always a temptation because as people who are fallen, even though we've been redeemed, we still struggle with that old sinful flesh, those passions of the flesh that Peter has talked about in this letter. If we're not careful. We'll take the gift that God's given us and we will want to use it to direct, to direct attention to ourselves. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the truth. We will. We'll, we'll see something that God has given us, this ability to do something in the body of Christ, whatever that is. And then as we do that, we'll want to receive the glory and the honor and the praise. But notice what he says in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter is quelching any, any thought that we would use our gifts for our own glory. There are all kinds of gifts in the body of Christ. He kind of categorizes them in two ways. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. In other words, the speaking gifts would be things like prophecy and teaching and exhortation. But right now I'm using a gift of, of preaching that the Lord has, has graciously blessed me with. That would be a speaking type gift. Maybe you teach Sunday school. Uh, that would be a, a, a speaking type gift. But there's service type gifts too. Other places in the scripture where we have lists of of gifts, some that would fit under this category of serving would be things like giving, things like leading, things like the gift of mercy, mercy ministries. But notice what he says here. When you speak, you speak God's, you speak God's truth, not your own opinion. That's what he's saying. 
The one who speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, not oracles of yourself, not 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 words that you come up with. But you say what God has said in his word. And what happens when you do that? God gets the glory. Now, if you're if you have a serving type gift and you serve with God's strength, not your own ability. And when you do, guess what? God gets the glory. It's all for his glory. God's word plus God's power equals God receiving the glory, not us. So when we speak, we speak God's word right here. And when we serve, we serve with God's strength, not our own. So at the end of the day, whether we're speaking or whether we're serving, whatever we're doing, we say God did it, not me. He gets all the glory. And God is glorified through Jesus. Look at the last part of verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why is he glorified? Why is the Father glorified through Jesus? Because it's only because Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, making making it there be a way that we could have our lives transformed by the gospel. The Holy Spirit can then, based on what Jesus has done on the cross and paying for our sins, can come in and change us and give us this gift, this spiritual gift. It's only because Jesus went to the cross. And so when we serve one another in the church using the gifts that God has given us, God gets glory through Jesus because we step back and say, it's really not me. The only reason I'm able to do this is because Jesus died on the cross for me. God loved me enough to save me from my sins. He gets all the glory. One writer said this, The aim of everything is that God should be glorified. The preaching is not done to display the preacher, but to bring men face to face with God. The service is rendered not to bring thanks and prestige to the giver of it, but to turn men's thoughts to God. Church, are you serving one another in such a way that it directs people's attention to God. We want to be disciplined in our relationships with one another. And there's one final way, one final area where Peter calls to be disciplined. And it's really short, but it's really crucial. He calls us to be disciplined to live for the glory of Jesus. He calls us to be disciplined to live for the glory of Jesus. Peter gets to the end of this main body. And he's not done with his letter but so often in the, in the letters of the New Testament, we see the writer break out in doxology, break out in praise to God. They just can't wait to the end of the letter to do it. We see this in lots of letters in the New Testament. Peter's no different. He falls prey to the overwhelming sense that God deserves to be glorified. And so he ends the main body of his letter with this phrase, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is worthy of all glory. He is the one who has gone to the cross. He is the one who has died for our sins. He is the one who has risen from the dead and therefore giving us a living, giving us a living hope. He is the one who now sits at the right hand of God, the father. He has dominion and power over all creation. It is comforting for persecuted believers to remember that Jesus, their king, our king, has all glory and power. Listen, the glory of Jesus is our purpose for living, and it is the goal of our submission and suffering. That God would be glorified through our perseverance in the faith, and that he would be glorified as we lead others to become worshipers of Jesus. Perhaps we could summarize Peter's instructions this way. Christians, I know that you're suffering, but remember, the end of all things is near. But 
Don't let that nearness of the end lead you to be lazy or lead you to be crazy. Lazy by sitting around doing nothing until Christ's return. Or crazy by living in unrestrained sin or in a worried frenzy. Instead, be disciplined to simply do what God has called you to do. To think clearly, to pray correctly, to love deeply, to care joyfully, to serve humbly, and to live for the glory of God. Maybe you think that the end should be filled with a little more drama, a little more anxiety, a little more craziness. Like those baking shows where despite their disciplined start, by the end, voices are raised and flour and sugar and icing and fondant just start flying all over the place. By the way, fondant should be outlawed. You shouldn't put it on food because it tastes disgusting. Anyways, but you know what? It makes the show more exciting in the end. But you know what happens? When they start rushing around the end, they're counting down 10, 9, 8. They get kind of sloppy. They do. They start making mistakes in those final seconds as they rush around. I think Peter would tell those bakers, stay calm, think clearly, care for those on your team, and remember your purpose. In other words, discipline yourself to simply do what you're supposed to do. Don't get lazy. Don't get crazy. Just do the next thing that will help you accomplish your goal. When he was asked what he would do if he knew the end would come today, Martin Luther said he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. What in the world was he talking about? It was his kind of maybe sarcastic, but really uh, intuitive way of saying this. You know what? If Jesus was going to come tomorrow, I wouldn't start running around in a frenzy. I would just do the next thing that God's called me to do, whatever that is. If the next thing on my to-do list that he had called me to do was plant a tree, I'd just do it. If the next thing on my to-do list was to pay my taxes, I'd just do it. Well, he's not going to sit around and be lazy, but he's not going to go crazy. He's just going to do the next thing on his, what I call, bringing glory to God to-do list. What's the next thing on your bringing glory to God to-do list? What is the next thing for you to live on mission? Is it to think clearly and pray correctly? Is it to somehow love and serve one another in the body of Christ, even in a simple way? Is it to sit down and say, am I living for the glory of King Jesus in every area of my life? He would be disciplined, Martin Luther, to simply obey. And I think that's what we would do. This is Peter's call to the Christians in this letter. These Christians who are feeling the effects of living in a world to which they don't belong. They're suffering for righteousness sake, but they don't need to give up and be lazy. And they don't need to give up and go crazy. They just need to keep plowing ahead day by day, living with discipline so they don't get sidetracked from living a life that brings God honor and glory. Suffering reminds us that we live in the last days, which leads us to live with more discipline in our lives, which makes us look more like Jesus and less like the world, which may lead to some more suffering for us here. But it also may lead to others wanting to know about the hope that we have, this living hope, a hope whose name is Jesus. And so we lead others to worship Jesus when we view suffering for Jesus as a motivation to live disciplined lives. I don't know how God is speaking to you in this passage of Scripture today. There's an area of your life that needs more discipline in it. It doesn't have to be something grand. Just these simple things like loving one another in the body of Christ. Being hospitable. Serving one another joyfully and humbly. 
I don't know. I don't know where you're at in relation to this passage. I hope that you're a follower of Jesus. And if you are, be disciplined in the way that you live. If you're not, you can start living for the glory of Jesus today. Just place your faith and trust in him. Turn from your sin and believe that Jesus paid the price for your sin on Calvary's cross. However you need to respond, you respond in obedience to this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for allowing us this opportunity today to to stand before your throne, to stand before your goodness and, and your wisdom that you have in your word. Father, your word is so holy. Father, it's, it's, it's so life-giving. Father, it is, it is, it is the, the truth that we have in this, in this world that is often full of, of distractions and full of lies. And, and, and Lord, it's something that we can build our lives on. And so, Father, I just pray that we would take your word to heart. Father, I know how you've been challenging me with this passage of Scripture. Father, I pray that you would challenge all of us, Father, to live disciplined lives for the sake of your glory, honor, and praise. Father, maybe today we just need to repent of not loving one another. Maybe we've been stirring up the flames of sin instead of putting out the flames of sin with the the fires of love for one another. Maybe we just need to be more hospitable. Maybe we need to to think clearly just about life. We've just got our minds all fogged up with the things of this world. Maybe we need to spend some time in in disciplined prayer before you. Father, maybe we need to stop trying to serve in the church to make a name for ourselves, but we need to serve to make a name for Christ, to lift high the name of Christ so that people will see you and not us. Father, maybe we need to evaluate the choices that we're making in our day-to-day lives and, and just be reminded that we're not to live for anything else except the glory of King Jesus who reigns, who has dominion and power over all creation. Father, just help us to be obedient to Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.